this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Katie Mulligan, Editor-in-Chief of ACG's magazine, Middle Market Growth. Our guests on today's episode are Cornelia Chang, Managing Director of Western Region Investments for Brightwood Capital Advisors, and Rich Grant, Director of Business Development for North Lane Capital Partners. Cornelia and Rich are both members of ACG's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Task Force, And in this interview, they talk about the goals of that group, their own experience with diversity in an industry that's still predominantly white and male, and they suggest ways that companies and individuals can help drive change in the middle market and ultimately bring in talented people with a wider range of perspectives to help make their organizations even stronger. Since we recorded this late last year, the DEI task force has published an official policy and a set of resources. Those are available on the ACG site, so we'll drop a link in the show notes. You'll also hear a couple of references to 2020 in our conversation, just based on when we taped this. Our episode today is brought to you by ACG Job Source, a job board and a go-to career resource for the middle market. You'll hear Rich talk about how he didn't have a finance background and earlier in his career wasn't aware of the opportunities that exist in middle market M&A. One of the great things about the Job Source Board is that it's tailored specifically for roles in this industry, from internships and entry-level positions all the way to senior leadership roles. So if you're looking for a career change or you know someone else who is, Job Source is a really solid place to start your search. There are other resources there too, like career coaching and resume writing, and it's not just for job seekers. Middle market employers can post jobs to Job Source as part of a broader hiring strategy, which you'll hear Cornelia and Rich talk about later on in this episode. You can check out the current job postings or add your own at jobsource.acg.org. So with that, let's get to the interview. Here's my conversation with Cornelia Chang and Rich Grant. Cornelia and Rich, thanks for joining me. So I mentioned you're both members of ACG's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Task Force, which was formed to help drive sustainable and systemic change in the ACG membership network. Can you talk about what the goals of of that task force are? Maybe starting with you, Cornelia. Sure. I think our industry is predominantly male and white. And I think we all recognize that it's been the same, has been no change. But it's clear that we can't just stand on the sideline and hope for change anymore. We have to take intentional active action. And so this is what we hope the task force will do is to focus on ACG internally as an organization across the ACG chapters to be a thought leader towards them and across our member and member firm communities, as well as the broader community to take, to be an active ally and intentionally take action to promote and advance diversity across our industry. I think this is what, you know, one of the goals that I hope we can achieve. And Rich, anything you'd add there? Yeah, I would just add that, you know, overall, our goal is to create a truly inclusive environment to empower our fellow ACG members uh, to champion DEI, you know, with an accountability attached to it. You know, we need to do more than just create a task force, talk about it and put out a statement. We need to create an environment that's going to advocate for the underrepresented in our community, and that comes in a variety of different forms, but that is really what the goal of the task force is overall, you know, and that might look a couple of different ways in terms of changing the demographics of firms that are associated with the ACG and also providing access to capital 
for the different uh, types of businesses that are out there and fit into the middle market sphere that, that we are focused on serving as a community overall. And I want to ask each of you to talk a little bit about like how you got involved in the first place and, and specifically, you know, whether your your professional experience has influenced your perspective on diversity and inclusion. You know, were were there obstacles that you either experienced directly or that you observed um, among others, your colleagues or, or friends that prompted you to play a more active role in pushing forward DEI initiatives like this task force is, is engaged in? Rich, you want to take that one first? Sure. I mean, um, you know, I am a, I guess, first-generation American, Black American, born of Jamaican parents, went to a very wonderful school in upstate New York, Colgate University. But my professional experiences have, have consistently put me in a room where there's not a lot of other Black males uh, or Black females or Latino males or females on the different sales teams that I've been a part of, even less than just my colleagues and peers that I'm working with in those organizations. There's, I have never, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe there's been one or two at my time at the New York Times, but there really has not been a lot of leadership that looks like me uh, at the organizations that I've worked at. So looking back to fresh out of college and you know, even uh, while I was in college, I just really have decided I need to be intentional and passionate about um, changing that for those that are coming, you know, after me. Another reason why I'm so passionate about this is I don't have a finance background, yet I have become a part of this community focused around financial services and investments. I've worked in advertising software as a service for some big companies and some small companies, some companies that are now private equity owned. That said, I feel like I'm a valuable member of this community without having the traditional background. There are plenty more like me. I am not that special. So I don't know how, but we need to find more people like myself and bring them into this community because they can add value in different ways, right? Everything will still drive businesses forward, um, but I got lucky that I found my way into this community. And, you know, once I was here, I have no intention of leaving it. I might work in different capacities, but as long as I'm a working professional, I hope to be a part of this middle market community in a variety of different ways. And what about you, Cornelia? How has, um, how has your career and professional experience sort of influenced your views on DEI? Yeah, I think for me, like Rich, uh, often I'm the only woman a minority in the room, you know, in the finance industry, and that's not unusual. But more than that, you know, my grandparents and parents were political refugees. They left their home country with nothing but clothes on their backs. My parents moved here, and I'm a first-generation immigrant also. My family moved here so I can have opportunity. And it's all about opportunity and access. And I think I've personally benefited throughout my, you know, educational career as professional career of having great sponsors and also people who have supported me. And that includes, you know, access to... Um, my first job in finance, it was through a professor who was a woman and an East Indian. And she connected me with my first job in finance. So I learned more about this industry. You know, you asked me back in high school what I wanted to do as a career. I never would have thought that this industry was even available, right? So, and then I think from there, you know, I was, uh, I became a fellow through the UCLA Reardon program founded by the former LA mayor. And that program helps minority and women 
um, prepare for MBA school. And I think through that program, you know, I didn't go to an Ivy League undergrad school and I didn't think about going to one of the top business schools or even applying. But through that program, they opened out the doors for me and also gave me the confidence to apply to top business schools. And I ended up going to Wharton and that opened doors. So it's about both access and opportunity. And I think from there, I've had some great sponsors, you know, who have advocated for me through my career. Uh, and that has been, you know, and so for where I sit, I want to give back. You know, I've been a mentor to other underprivileged children through most of my career. I, I sat on a board on a girls school. I volunteer back in, with the Reardon program to interview kids, you know, who are coming into the program now. So for me, you know, um, DE&I has been, I've both benefited from it and I want to give back to it. And it's important, I think, that all of us think about how we can give back to even in the smallest way to our local community, because I think every, per, every one of us can make a difference. And you both mentioned how, you know, in business and financial services, like there are not nearly enough women, people of color, other diverse backgrounds represented. So I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are in, in terms of what the biggest contributors to that lack of diversity, what those are, you know, why, why aren't we seeing these industries um, become more diverse? Yeah, I mean, I think I'll start and then Rich can chime in. I think for me, it's, you know, the, the deal making industries, it's a still a fairly, I would say, insular industries. A lot of jobs are not posted widely. So it's both a push and pull, right? From an educational perspective, schools have STEM program that helps kids learn about the different careers and jobs in STEM. We don't have that for finance, whether it's investment management, investment banking, private equity. There is no such program. So kids from broader underprivileged schools just don't know that, that these jobs are out there. And a lot of firms in our industries tend to be smaller. You know, you have some large bulge bracket firms, but a lot of firms there are 10 people, 20 people, 40 people. My firm is 40 something people. They don't have the resources to send recruiters all around the country to recruit, you know? And so part of that is also they they take a, a approach of, we'll go to the same people, the same places we've gone to before or through referrals for our, our existing, you know, whether it's partners, candidates. So, you know, so I think it is education, access, and opportunities. It's at the educational level, we need to start at the, at the school level. So kids know about the opportunities in this industry. It's about educating the kids about what type of classes they should take to position them to succeed in this industry. And it's firms, you know, finding ways to partner with organizations that focus on educational program with kids to connect the firms who are looking for diverse candidates with the potential candidates. So it's, it's a little bit of all of those in my view. Yeah, where I would chime in on that is I think one of the um, most lacking components uh, for what we're facing is there's a lack of intentionality in their approach to diversity. And when doing so, I sort of a, I wouldn't say it's a refusal, but a resistance to leave the comfort zones of where you have recruited successfully before. For a very good reason, relatability is a big factor in how you build out your organization, your team. But if your organization and team has been sort of built in one way with one type of sort of background, then you're going to have a hard time diversifying or even attracting people to it because uh, much like Cornelia mentioned before, um, without you know, great sponsors that are gonna bring in um, that candidate from a place where they have not looked before, 
it's going to be a hard thing to do. So, you know, until firms and, you know, companies too, because this isn't just a, a financial service industry, you know, call it dilemma, you know, until they adopt sort of, hey, let's change the places we're looking. Let's get out of our comfort zone as we're looking for a way to diversify our firm. That is going to remain the challenge in my opinion. And it's about thinking about recruiting differently, right? Instead of just saying, looking at the resume of this person's as interned at, you know, a relevant firm, it's thinking about potential, right? How can we look at the evaluation process differently, you know, to look at the potential of candidates who are outside of comfort zone and how do we evaluate the potential for them to succeed in our firm? And one argument that I've heard organizations make that, you know, they they say they're trying to diversify, but that they're not able to find diverse candidates. They want to and they just can't access the the candidate pool that they're looking for. Um, It sounds like your response to that would be they're they're just using the same tactics they've always used and they need to mix up and and revisit their recruitment practices. Is is that right? I, I think part of it is is, you know, a lot of firms want to look for candidates that are, you know, easy to plug and play. They have done work in the space. They're experienced directly. Those are easy hires, right? And you're, it's, it's much harder to find diverse candidates, a wide pool of diverse candidate with that exact match. And so it's, as Rich mentioned, is willing to step out of the comfort zone. And that means within the firm, provide more training, you bring in candidates that may not have direct experience, but you need to have a program to help to help them get up to speed and train them, right? So that's part of it. Um, and I think the other, as I mentioned, the other thing is really how do you evaluate candidates differently than just say, I look at this candidate, they've had two years of experience in investment banking or private equity, so they're a perfect fit, or they did a summer internship in private equity. A lot of underprivileged kids in schools who don't live in major big cities will never get that experience on their resume while they're in school. And that already puts them automatically at disadvantage for, you know, for kids who have access to that. And so how, do we, how can we think about this differently? And this is, I think, the challenge of firms need to think about. And to Rich's point about intentionality, a lot of these DEI decisions are left to HR, which is great. They do a great job executing, but the int- intentionality needs to come from the very top. It needs to come from the board, from the C-suite, from the partners who says that, you know, who, who create the policies and the goals for the HR team to execute. You know, I, I, the challenge is real, right? The challenge of financial services firms recruiting um, diverse candidates, it is a real challenge. And I think part of the contributing factor goes back to what I mentioned and Cornelia echoed of where you're looking, right? Um, the traditional means clearly have not yielded diverse candidates. So now there needs to be an intentionality of finding other avenues to pursue and find these candidates that will not only provide value in terms of uh, diversity, but also end up being the type of people that are gonna be great leaders in our firm, right? And are going to lead to more candidates like them because we've now expanded where we look 
No, it's, it's an interesting point and I think that, you know, different groups have focused on different stages of the pipeline. I mean, you you alluded to this, Cornelia, of education, access, and opportunity. So it's, some groups are putting more of the emphasis on, you know, education around the career paths that are available. Others are more for working age people and, and mentorship, like you mentioned, Rich. Um, there's also, you know, some groups focusing more on, on the leadership level and how do you have more diverse groups within the executive and and board of directors um, level. So I, I wonder from the standpoint of the task force, you know, how you as a group are thinking about where to put the emphasis in order to to drive immediate change. Cornelia, you want to take that one first? Look, I think ACG is a middle market deal-making community. So what we want to do is leverage what we do well and partner with organizations that, you know, have synergistic ways where we can really advance DE&I and help our members do this better. And so that is, you know, from, I would say, starting internally, we have to lead by example. That means, you know, ACG as an organization, its board, its committee, its membership needs to start looking more like the community. Our programming needs to have an intentional component to bring, um, um, you know, DE&I, you know, to our programming, which then will lead to attracting a wider audience. You know, I think in, at ACGLA, um, we're one of the largest chapters like New York, where Rich is a part of and has our, our own DE&I committee. We've done, you know, two events, cross chapter events with Dallas and Arizona, where we brought in a Latino woman entrepreneur as a speaker as the first event. And our, uh, our last event where we had featured a black tech woman founder. And so it's intentional. Um, um, it's a women's event as, as the way it evolved, but we intentionally wanted to select uh, and feature minority founders and entrepreneurs because it's important. And I think across everything ACG does, um, you know, the intentionality should be there. And I think we want to inspire our member firms and our members, as well as our sponsors to do the same, to make a commitment to do the same and have an accountability to look at this and the intentionality needs to have accountability as Rich also you know, mentioned. And, and we wanna make sure we drive that um, and that's important. And to your point, there's a lot of different components that we can do. We are not an educational firm, but we can bring educational components to our membership around you know, training and conscious bias. Some of our firms are small, they may not have resources. Some of our chapters are also small. And so if we can bring, you know, ACG, you know, globals, you know, resources to help them um, with the educational component, that's a fantastic thing we can do, as well as, you know, encouraging and inspiring, you know, our, each of the chapters to connect with relevant organization within the community, connect our member employer firms with the potential candidates within the community that is underprivileged or diverse. I think, Rich, you know, we learned about the ACG Cup at some of the chapters that they're hosting and what how great it's been in helping member firms recruit candidates that are underprivileged and minorities and also giving opportunities for candidates who is not aware of opportunities in our industry, what this is all about. So those are the things I think we can do well, um, you know, uh, and, and start there. I mean, there's no one correct place because the factors change with every different market. You know, Cornelia gave great examples of how New York and LA um, can approach things, but our friends in Minneapolis, Detroit, Atlanta, um, Florida might have different approaches because it fits their markets better. So there's no one right way, but one consensus that we on the task force have all agreed 
is that you know recruiting and getting involved in earlier stages of the career, of professionals careers finance professionals careers will be a great step now once we've done that and we've edu educated them to the options for them there's three e's that we keep mentioning and that I, it really stood out to me when I learned these three E's, and that's educate, engage, and empower. You know, what we have to do is we have to educate those that we have not recruited to our community into this financial service bracket about the great opportunities that are presented in our middle market focus. Next, once they're there, we have to keep them engaged, right? We have to find different ways to keep them engaged, um, get them involved in committees, provide leadership, uh, opportunities when it comes to the conferences and then once they're there empower them to to make their peers that are minorities or or underprivileged underserved uh, communities want to get involved right there, nobody one thing that came up in several different meetings is you know there have been several efforts across many different chapters to diversify the base um, and when you make those efforts and those people that have never been to an ACG event come there for the first time. And, you know, for lack of a better term, they see how vanilla it is. They don't want to return. So that's why, you know, engaging and empowering is so important to changing our community overall. No, that makes a lot of sense. And Rich, I, I was thinking about something that um, you said before we started recording, which is the debate over whether this has been the shortest, longest year or the longest, shortest year. And I think a, a big reason for that feeling for all of us has been the shift to remote work. I mean, we're talking right now over Zoom. I think in a another world pre-COVID, we might have been doing this in person. Um, talk about how you expect the remote work shift to influence some of these these new activities. In right on brand for 2020, I'm uncertain, <laughs> right? Um, but you know that with that uncertainty, I do know something with some level of surety, and that is the majority of these candidates that we're talking about and these these professionals that we're talking about, they're likely stationary and very reachable right now with intentional efforts. Mm -hmm. That is something that I think you know with enough brain power and focus, we can find right the correct ways to engage those people because, you know, for the most part, just about any major city, right down to small college towns, people are more stationary than they've ever been. Um, so, you know, while there's not a certain strategy I could tell, uh, tell you or, or idea, you know, of exact uh, practice, I do know that, you know, the remote challenge can also be spun into an advantage mm -hmm. and uh, a promising situation due to that factor. Mm -hmm. I like that glass half full uh, perspective. Cornelia, anything anything you want to add there? Yeah, you know, it's a two-edged sword, I think. Um, I think our industry, the firms tend to be dominated within major cities, and that's where most of the people tend to be employed. So I think remote working does open the door for geographic diversity to reach, you know, maybe a wider potential pool of candidates, you know, um, you know, in more in, in outside of the major cities, which is good. Mm -hmm. But, 
you know, I think the remote also brings new challenges. As a woman, um, I have many friends who are trying to balance their kids' remote learning with their job. And I read a statistic somewhere that the dropout rate of women versus men during COVID has been much higher because they just can't balance, you know, um, working from home and dealing with uh, basically being a home teacher for their kids, uh, especially younger kids with the remote learning because it's, it's a full-time job, you know, they, they get on and off every 30 minutes and it's just too much. So, and then the, I think the last point is also only time will tell. Um, new hires in particular is a challenge to get them trained and you also become less visible um, to where the center of power is, right? At headquarters, if you are in a remote location and people don't see you and, and you can easily be forgotten. You know, I've worked with, at remote offices, you know, um, many parts of my career. So I intentionally make an effort to spend time in headquarters for that reason. Um, and if you're permanently remote or a, a lot more time remote, that makes it much more challenging, especially if you're new. So I think only time will tell how this will really truly bear out. And a lot of what we've been talking about so far has really been at the firm or the organizational level. But if there's a, a listener right now who you know has heard you both talk about your work in this space and, and they want to do something now in order to affect change, what are one or two actions that they can take? Um, that can be whether their organization already has a DEI policy in place or, or perhaps someone working in an organization that doesn't yet have that. Rich, you want to take that one first? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I, I think this is a, a prime time um, to seek out groups and orgs that are different than any ones that you've engaged previously get off the traditional paths in a year that has been anything but traditional. And one thing that I've picked up through this period in regards to so many different phases of life, um, but especially in regards to diversity, equity, and inclusion, is listen to learn, not to respond. Um, because when you listen to learn, you might be provided with all kinds of perspectives that you were not privy to before right? You might have had a preconceived notion uh, of, of what this person is about or their approach or their perspective. And if you listen to learn uh, as opposed to respond or challenge, um, you might be able to, to open up your eyes in a way or see something that you've been looking at for quite some time in a different light. Another thing that I would do is what you know Cornelia uh, mentioned in you empower and you give the platform to the underrepresented when your firm has an opportunity, right? Or when you as a person have an opportunity, right? You listen to perhaps a podcast on, on a topic that you, know, you have never listened to before, right? Led by, be it a female entrepreneur, be it a, a black entrepreneur, be it a Latino entrepreneur, be it an immigrant that has come over here to, to carve out uh, a new life, but gain sort of those perspectives um, through those sort of an effort, because, you know, that is going to help you understand a little bit better or pique your curiosity to dive deeper as an individual and as a professional into more on that subject. So when you're faced with an opportunity to perhaps hire, uh, expand, or partner um, with people of that background, you, you at least have done some, you know, sort of non-revenue facing efforts on your own, right? Because I think that's another thing that, that is important to address. A lot of this has to come out of a personal want 
to improve and want to commit, not just do it for a bottom line or a top line um, item. Cornelia, anything you'd, you'd point to as, as something that a listener could do to take action? Yeah, um, I think to echo Rich's point, it's something that it, that is, I think, a personal want, you know, to, to improve, to change, to make a difference. And there, and, and as Rich mentioned, there are multiple ways to do this, right? Whether you're in the beginning of your career, you can be a recent college undergrad, you can mentor an underprivileged high school kid, you know, and donate a couple hours of your time, you know, now, especially remotely, you can do that so easily, um, you know, to, you know, be an active ally and supporting a colleague, you know, a minority colleague at, at your office, be a friend to them. And if you're in a more senior role, if your organization doesn't have a DEI initiative, start one. And think about that, you know, don't think about the barriers, think about the potential um, or find a community organization where you can, you know, volunteer or help them, you know, develop DE&I within the community. So I would say it's about finding what you personally want to engage and how you want to engage and just act, intentionally act. I think that's the important is have the intention to, to actually take action. And for organizations that are, you know, making strides toward creating a more inclusive environment, are well-meaning, want to do the right thing here, are there any common things that you see them get wrong? Yeah, I mean, a lot of firms, you know, think I can have a DNI committee that's run by HR. We'll do some unconscious bias training or some diversity program, and that's pretty much the end of it. And that's not enough. I think it needs to start from the top. I, I think for meaningful long-term change to happen, the C-suite needs to be engaged. Our white male partners and senior board members and C-suite needs to be directly engaged. And any diversity program, you need to see your C-suites or your board directly involved and actively advocating. It really needs to come from the top for change to happen. I really think that that's the case because otherwise, you can't inspire and engage you know, people underneath you to take action I was just going to jump in on that too, because I think what Cornelia said is so true. Before you even look at an effort to hire or create a DEI leadership position, look at the leadership of the organization and see if you can diversify that first and foremost. Because if you diversify the leadership of the organization, you're doing more than just creating a um, sort of a figurehead position, uh, a trend-based position because I don't think that does a service to your organization or to the community that it was created to address. So, you know, I think that if you do decide to go that route, that person needs to be basically viewed as part of the leadership of the organization overall as well. And if you do that, then you're likely on the correct path because that means the top of the organization is committed to, you know, sharing that space to guide this effort as opposed to, um, going off of just what they feel or, or their ideas are on diversifying their firm. And there's one thing that I would like to go back to in regards to, you know, something a listener could do um, that I forgot to add and I just want to go back to. I personally have taken upon myself to go to my alma mater and find a group that I'm connected to and place a lot of time there changing it. So I have, I went to Colgate University. I was fortunate to play football there. And I have been a part of working with the coaching staff to create a council alumni of color um, based on players of color that have played football at Colgate. Now, the goal of this isn't just to talk about football, but it's to learn more about their respective experience, right? We have alumni that, that stretch back to 87. 
grads to engaging alumni that graduated in the class of 2020. Um, and one of the things that we're doing with that is first and foremost, we're focused on the kids that are on campus now and their experiences, but we're also working with all these different generations of alum and sharing career opportunities. I know that I have shared with them about this ACG community that I'm a part of and how important networking is to advancing my career. And I'm trying to give them the keys to understanding how to parlay that to further their careers in whatever field um, that they'd like to pursue. So that is just one way that you can personally engage and get involved in something. It doesn't have to be sports related. It could just be going back to your alma mater and seeking out perhaps the Black Student Union or seeking out you know, the, the Pan-Asian community, the, the Pan-African community, whatever it may be, and just finding ways to engage them and learn from them, but also teach them a little bit about your firm, your industry, your peer group, so they can consider if they want to be a part of it when the time is right for them after they've graduated, because you know that is something that is very important too. You know, we all need to connect with people at different stages of their career because, you know, there might be somebody who's, uh, you know, fresh out of college that I can learn a lot from, and there might be, you know people that have graduated 40 years ago that I can learn a lot from. And I think if, you know, any listener can find their way to do that also, I think they would gain a lot of value in changing their perspective on how to influence change with diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think that makes a lot of sense because someone who's maybe listening and thinking, oh, where do I start? A network that you already sort of have a a foothold into, like your university, seems like a a pretty logical place to, to get started. We've talked about how companies can look inwardly at their staff makeup and hiring practices. So taking that a step further, Cornelia, are there ways that companies can use their external business relationships to further their diversity and inclusion goals? In terms of what companies can do that they forget is to invest in minority-owned businesses, right? I mean, is to kind of, it's to remind them to, you know, as every day they do, especially large companies that invest a lot of dollars, right? Think about having a program to invest in minority businesses, right? I mean, um, for us, like my firm, we have an SBIC fund too. And that was a dedicated fund to invest in minority and women-owned businesses. You know, Mm -hmm. other funds, and it's been a very successful, you know, returning fund. So other firms in the investment space can think about that. But also as you do business, when you make purchases, just everyday business transactions, think about engaging more with, you know, minority-owned firms. No, that makes a ton of sense. And it it seems too like even just from financial self-interest, if you're looking for deals that are high quality businesses that are being overlooked, it just seems like a great opportunity. Right. And that's exactly what I think. I mean, it's, you know, I was fortunate actually uh, plug for ACG uh, events, but I just attended the consumer and retail um, conference here in New York and met with a private equity firm that just invested in a 35-year-old multicultural consumer product. It's mm-hmm. a hair brand that I, my family happens to use. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, thank God, you're right. This, this firm invested basically in a minority-run business, mm-hmm. right? Middle market company. And right. this firm that invested in them, they saw the value there and they acted on it. Well, they're going to have success, I'm sure, with this. And if they right. do, why isn't everybody else, mm-hmm. right? Why aren't they seeking out? There's tons yeah. of them. You know, thinking about me as a black man in particular, 
the black American, the amount of capital associated with our spending, we are a very, very important foundation of America. There's a lot of business owners that look like me that have great businesses that are probably wonderful platforms. Let's help our community find those yeah. and invest in those. Mm -hmm. yeah. For my final question, I, I want to go back to the task force, you know, where we where we started, you know, as this group moves forward with a policy and, and recommendations, what do you envision as the heaviest lift in the year ahead? Cornelia, you want to take that one? Yeah, I think change is hard, right? I spent most of my career with very large firms in the in the financial industries in this marketplace. And that's like steering a container ship, right? So I, I now uh, am with Brightwood and we are, you know, our founder is black and we're a 100% minority owned firm. And, you know, and we have 40% women, you know, in our firm and 40% ethnic diversity. And we're really proud of that. And, but that, you know, we, we sort of started from the ground up as a minority owned firm and intentionally look to maintain that diversity and have that diversity, right? As I look at ACG and what ACG is looking to do, we are hoping to, you know, kind of migrate ACG internally as well as helping shape the overall middle market deal-making community to move towards equitable inclusion and giving access and opportunity to everyone. So I think, you know, I think the challenge is, first of all, internally, you know, how do we change to, to look more like that? Then how do we develop programs to attract a more diverse audience who, who then wants to be members? And then how do we engage our members and member firms to make a commitment and intention to move in the same direction so that we're all moving in the same direction towards a common goal. And I think the effect, you know, hopefully will be a compounded effect, but it will take time. I think the challenge is, you know, we have to take baby steps along the way to do it right and move everyone and bring everyone along to move in the same direction. And Rich, what would you point to as the, the greatest challenge in the year ahead? Uh, you know, I really think that the challenge for us as a task force is going to be taking that first step, right? Taking that first step of the, the respective professionals that we're going to seek to engage in our different chapters, right? Because every chapter needs to find the right one for their chapter and act on it. They might not all look the same in that approach. What, um, you know, the, the San Francisco chapter and the LA chapter might look different on day one, but after that first step and what will come from learning from that first step will help every chapter figure out where they go, you know, with the second step. So, you know, and at the end of the day, you know, our, our goal is to really foster and empower growth, you know, across the middle market. And once we've taken this first step, we got to show the value of just creating diversity and all the opportunities that will come for us all to capitalize on pretty, pretty quickly, uh, hopefully. Rich and Cornelia, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or Google Play, where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help other listeners find out about us. 
If you have an idea for a guest or a topic that you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd love to hear your suggestions. Please email them to editor at acg.org. I'd also encourage you to check out our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more content covering the middle market, private capital investment, and trends in middle market M&A.